This episode of Straight Up was recorded in January 2017 and features Miriam Elder from BuzzFeed News and Ryan Devereaux from The Intercept in conversation with me, Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, on national security in the age of Trump. So President Trump blames the media for creating this rift between him and the intelligence agencies. Ryan, as a member of the media, do you feel guilty about that? No, uh, because that's not true. I, Trump created the rift between Trump and the intelligence agencies. I mean, he compared the situation that he was in with the intelligence community to Nazi Germany. People I mean, who normally are very suspicious of the intelligence community on the political left in journalism, suddenly we're all like rallying behind the CIA. Like that's kind of weird, right? Yeah, but I think there's just this really broad repositioning happening where Trump is trying to like reset the idea of what the CIA can do. So inside the CIA, you have factions that, yeah, are probably really angry with what he did, but I bet there's also, we know from reporting, there are factions inside which are, who are really excited that he's, you know, with the idea that he can potentially let them cut loose and do whatever whatever they want. And then you have a repositioning um, on the left, you have a repositioning on the right. It just feels like everything is really up in the air right now. So that's yeah. true that the factions thing is true? Because I've heard that, but I don't know if that's another part of the static. and that's That's a real thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, of course. It's a, it's a big institution with a lot of different people with different politics and CIA. A lot of folks in CIA pride themselves on being objective thinkers. Um, they come down on political issues in different ways. And for sure, there, there are conservative folks in CIA who are going to look at what's happening and feel like they're being let off the leash a little bit. But we have to remember that the way in which the, the whole sort of torture scandal broke out in, in the mid-2000s. I mean, that impacted CIA folks in a major, major way. That was traumatizing for a lot of the sort of front lines, CIA personnel that are this out. Like the waterboarding zone. stuff. The waterboarding stuff. I mean, people who were working on, who weren't involved in torturing people, but who were swept up in the sort of suspicion, the cloud of suspicion that hung over everybody that was working there. That traumatized people. So I think there's a good amount of folks in the agency who are looking at what's happening right now and seeing possible redo of, you know, the worst elements of the Bush administration for them, which was them being caught up in doing things that they could be, potentially be dragged into court for. So, I mean, that, that whole period really shook a lot of folks at the agency, and I think that that's where a lot of the fear right now is coming from. But then again, I mean, you know, you're going you're gonna to find people there who are also ready to, to really ramp up the wars, um, and... Trump is definitely uh, sending out the signal that that's what he's interested in doing. I want to ask you to dump your notebook on the table, at least not to have a few more drinks, but like, what are you working on? Or what part of the story do you feel you have that hasn't really made it to the mainstream yet? Like, what aren't we getting um, that we should get about what's going on there? I mean, with the thing that I'm really interested in understanding is the way in which sort of the familiar elements of the war on terror, the agencies, the, the sort of operations, surveillance, all, all of that sort of stuff, I think there's a real possibility of it being turned inward. Mike Flynn's book, National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, one of, the, one of the, his core sort of principles in his vision of the way that this fight is going to play out is that it starts at home and it starts domestically. And I think that the FBI is a super interesting agency to be thinking about right now because I think that we're going to see um, this whole apparatus really turning inward on Muslim Americans and, and, and those communities. And I think that's like really where our focus 
should be right now. There's a prospect for civil liberties violations, uh, unlike anything we've seen in quite some time or maybe ever. I mean, it's dark. That raises an interesting question. Are we letting Obama off the hook with this focus on the bad things that Trump and Flynn want to do when it comes to maybe like restarting black sites and doing other terrible things? I mean, it's not like the Obama administration was a glorious moment for human rights and civil liberties when it came to this part of the, the policy world, right? Well, yeah, neither domestically nor internationally. Like, Obama had, you know, his pluses and, and minuses like any any president. But I think, like, we're going through such an unprecedented time right now that it's totally fair for 100% of our attention to be on what the Trump administration is trying to do. So alleged Russian hacking of the election is all over the news. How worried should we be that that's what actually happened? So my, my whole approach to the Russia thing has been this quote from uh, Catch-22, which is like, um, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that they aren't after you <laughs> um, or they aren't out to get you. And it seems like there has been a lot of like wild, wild reporting and very simplistic reporting, but that doesn't mean that there isn't like real kernels of truth. Well, one thing that I want to ask you about uh, on Russia is, so there was this report yesterday, the Russian Ministry of Defense put out, right, that... The U.S. coalition had participated in airstrikes, yeah. uh, anti-ISIS airstrikes, right? First of their kind. And then, of course, the Pentagon comes back and says, no, that's absolutely untrue. But I'm wondering if you think that we could see future part, like cooperation between the two governments in the anti-ISIS war. Um, I think that, if, you know, if, with this administration, certainly. Yeah. I mean, that seems to be uh, Trump's priority beyond, you know, whatever however deep his relationship with Russia and Russian officials or Russian businessmen or whatever goes, um, it does seem like he wants to have a, a realignment and that his number one uh, priority isn't necessarily, you know, like justice in Syria. Yeah. It's, um, you know, killing Islamic terrorists. Uh, and if the Russians can convince him that that's what they're doing, then yeah, I think you can totally see that kind of alignment. How do Russians feel about Putin? Are there decidedly different camps? Does he represent some sort of a welcome break for enough people that they've put their faith in him? Like, how does he stand in the body politic there relative to what Trump is to us? It's really similar to what you have in the U.S., where you have a, a fairly large number of people who really, really welcome Putin, welcomed him when he came in and welcome him now. He's a break from, like, a chaotic past, you know, drunk Yeltsin. Um, he's someone who represents law and order. Um, and who represents Christian values. Like, there's a definitely uh, a faction of the population, a pretty large part, that believes that, just like with Trump. Then you have, um, you know, what is kind of the catch-all phrase is opposition or oppositionally-minded people who uh, look for, you know, independent sources of information, who believe in things like human rights, who believe in things like freedom of the press, the freedom to protest, uh, and they certainly don't support Putin. It's not unlike the situation we have here. What happens if the bromance ends between <laughs> Putin and Trump? Well, that's the interesting thing. Is like It's going to be interesting to watch how does Russia exist without having the U.S. as an enemy. For so long, uh, Russia's been able to say, like, evil America is, is screwing with our elections and with our politics and whatever. And now that that doesn't exist, what are they going to do? We're seeing, in, like, this hints of an interesting realignment in Russia where they're now starting to put the blame on like the deep state in the US and saying that really, you know, it's like the spy agencies in the US that are looking to undermine Trump. So, you know, maybe that's You know, you've raised something that I think hasn't been talked about enough, the discussion about potential Russian interference in our election. 
some people, particularly on the left here, have said, well, don't we do that all the time? And obviously Putin has mentioned that as being one of his complaints, that we go in to observe elections, but in fact we're kind of meddling with them or uh, delegitimizing regimes after they're elected democratically. Is there any legitimacy to that complaint on his part? I think there's a lot of ways to answer that. But for me, um, the most important thing is just because the U.S. does it doesn't make it okay. And if we're critical of the U.S. doing it, doesn't mean that we should say, well, then it's fine for other nations to do it. We should hold our government to account and other governments to account. Do you believe it? Do you believe the accusations in general? Miriam could answer this question better than I can because I'm in no way a Russia expert. But <laughs> it's... Anything could be possible at this point, right? Like, look at, look at where we are right now. Who, who knows? I don't what, know. What, what do, do you think? think? Putting, aside, um, putting aside the question of hacking and stuff like that, you know, as someone who follows uh, Russian politics and Russian media and Russian, like, troll campaigns and all that stuff, and have been since, you know, well before, like, the election campaign even took off, um, you did see, like, a lot... Uh, the, Russian, the Russian government definitely came down on one side and they wanted a certain outcome. Um, and I think, actually, like the outcome wasn't necessarily the election of Donald Trump. It was just like pure and utter chaos, and they kind of got that. So one question I have, and others have too, is we have this massive intelligence apparatus, which ideally is supposed to tell us about things uh, before they happen or when they're happening, but seems to be telling us about this after it happened. So why weren't we able to stop it? Do we have the capability to stop this kind of thing while it's happening so it doesn't actually like mess up an election? I mean, it's a totally valid question. We don't know the ins and outs of why, why we didn't know this earlier, right? But we, we run up against this sort of problem all the time when there's a terrorist attack, you know, anywhere, particularly when it happens in the U.S., we're like, well, how come this bloated massive intelligence apparatus that collects all of this information didn't see this coming. The fact is, it is not an all-knowing entity. Like, it's, these are institutions made up of human beings, and they're, they have their politics, and they have their problems, and sometimes we, don't, we just don't get it. We miss things for whatever reason. So I don't know what, I, would, I want to know what the story is, but I think that there is a, a sort of misunderstanding about the way that these agencies work, and people expect us to know everything. I think it's really important for the for the truth to come out uh, in and of itself, and then you know what various government bodies like want to do with that information is is their business. But um, I really want to learn um, not just you know what the Russians were doing in terms of hacking and uh, leaking to WikiLeaks and getting all this information out there, but uh, really the relationships between various members of the of the Trump administration uh, and Russia. And as for what can be done, I mean, I think you know it's it's not just the United States. There's a host of really really important elections coming in Europe, France, Germany, the Netherlands. They're already starting to see signs of the influence campaign that we saw here. And so anything we can do to bring it to light can also maybe prevent it from happening in other countries. Probably important not to lose sight of all of the other factors that can domestically that contributed to the election going the way that it went. Right? We don't oh, want to be we don't want to be singularly focused on this idea right. that the Russians put him in power a hundred percent. You know, right. we have to remember that a lot of things came together to bring us where we are right now. Let's talk about Trump's picks for national security. Were you surprised by any of them? 
So the one that I find most interesting is Mike Flynn because he didn't have to go through any sort of approvals process. He's national security advisor, so he's just sort of there chilling, doing whatever uh, whatever he wants to do. And he's you know one person that people are reporting is under investigation for uh, for his relationship with uh, with Russia. So that'll be interesting to watch. Um, Rex Tillerson as state, I think, like came almost as a bit of a relief after people were like floating Giuliani and John Bolton. Uh, but that'll that'll be interesting also for his ties uh, with Russia and then. I don't know. I mean, it seems like the like defense and CIA guys um, get relatively good reviews, maybe because others are just so like. Whoosh. Yeah, I mean, people are putting so much stock in Mattis, right? Uh, Mad Dog. I yeah, like Mad Dog yeah. to be sort of the voice of reason, the adult in the room. I mean, we'll see how that goes. Um, and Pompeo, I mean, he's kind of interesting, I guess. But but I I agree with Miriam. Like Flynn is the guy that I I find like. Pretty fascinating. And you you interviewed him. Yeah. What was this? So what was he like? I interviewed him this summer uh, when everybody was convinced that Mike Flynn was not going to become uh, again a powerful official in the U.S. government. Um, it was when his, his book was coming out, which is his sort of vision of the war that we need to fight, and and it, at the heart of it is Islam, right? And Flynn goes back and forth, and he's very loose with his language b between radical Islamists and just talking about Islam in, in general. Um, I think that you know Flynn, Flynn cut his teeth really in the Iraq War as his intelligence chief with JSOC, right next to McChrystal during this period in which they were, you know, sort of finessing the strategy of find, fix, finish this process for killing terrorists at a really rapid clip, and he got a a lot of, uh, of respect during that period, right, as being a sort of intellectual architect of that stuff. Went to Afghanistan, wrote critically about intelligence failures in Afghanistan in, in a way that a lot of people were like, wow, that's bold, you know, that's fresh thinking and that sort of thing. Um, and then he goes to DIA, and he's running things there. And in, in a Pretty short amount of time, a lot of problems started to emerge. And Flynn it was was basically seen as his people who I've spoken to who worked for him as just a terrible, terrible manager who want, who really wanted to remake DIA in the image of the CIA, get more people out in the field, that sort of thing. Had a resentment towards civilian employees, and he was pushed out. Now after that, Flynn uh, Flynn creates this this narrative about what happened to him in which he is this guy who was wronged by the Obama administration. Right, he's a martyr he was, to the truth. Yeah, right. he was speaking truth to power. He was essentially a disenfranchised white male who became very into what Trump had to offer and then is now occupying this incredibly powerful position within the administration. We'll see how long he lasts because he is under a lot of scrutiny right now. But I think in terms of his worldview, he's a true believer. Like He believes that we are locked in an existential war with Islam slash radicalism, whatever he, you know, however Islam he or fascism, whatever he, wants say, to, yeah. whatever he wants to call it. And I, I mean, he's, he could be a really, really dangerous player. National security has always involved an element of running up against secrecy rules. In the first few days of the Trump administration, a signature has been closing down avenues of information, um, EPA, uh, social media posts and press releases from different agencies. Under President Trump, how are journalists supposed to cover national security? The job got harder under the Obama administration. You know, more leak investigations than any other, all previous administrations combined, and that directly impacted national security reporting, right? 
So I anticipate a, a continuation of that sort of problem. And, and probably it's going to get worse. Um, and for people in government who are inclined to share things with the media, who we need, um, they're, they're, taking, they're taking a serious risk. And I think, I think we need to under, understand that when people do that sort of thing, it, it is really critically important. And it's critically, critically important that we protect them and, and understand you know, what they're contributing. I think that it's going to be absolutely vital for people in government to, to maintain contact with journalists and keep us informed on what's going on. But it's, it's going to require you know, organi- organizations, journalistic organizations, being prepared to, to go to bat for their sources, to protect their sources, and to know how, how, to, how to protect their sources. And given all of the communication that we do electronically, that, that, that requires some amount of education for reporters and sources. But I think that's going to be the, the sort of face of things going forward. I think people are going to speak up, but I think this administration is going to try to find them too. Do you think your approach will be different uh, in the Trump era versus the world before? Um, I think it's, I just endorse entirely what Ryan said. Like we've just, you know, doubled down on thinking about uh, communicating securely with sources, um, making sure that, you know, everyone kind of knows the rules and just being incredibly careful and also being, but being ready and being open to receive the information from the people who will inevitably dissent at all levels uh, from this administration. What do you think about the signal that Obama sent, not that the president will be followed, but by commuting the sentence for Chelsea Manning, uh, but not for Snowden. Um, He was criticized by opening the door to people who were going to blow whistles um, on the right. Some people thought he didn't go far enough. Does that send a signal about the tolerance of dissent and whistleblowing? Is that relevant in the Trump era? I think Trump is completely rewriting the rules, and I think it, it would be difficult to, to, to think of a world in which like Trump takes lessons from Obama. We're in just totally new territory here. So I guess one of the questions is, uh, does this new era, this new president, um, require some change in our tactics, our approach? You know, BuzzFeed's release of the dossier about President Trump obviously has, um, has raised that issue. Do you think your personal methods change at all? Do you think that conversation is the right one to have now? Mm, I think, you know, it's always the role of the media to act as a check on power. That was true with Obama. It was true with Bush. Um, and it'll just all the more so be uh, be true with Trump. In terms of what we're doing differently, I think we're like getting ready for potentially some battles ahead. We, we posted a job for another like First Amendment lawyer and stuff. Um, so getting ready, you know, for challenges. Um, and as for the dossier, like to me, that was much more of like a reflection of the new media environment rather than uh, rather than necessarily like a reaction to Trump. It happened to be about him, but the reason we published it wasn't like to stick a finger in his eye, you know. Do you think the media will cooperate with each other when it comes to issues that affect access for everybody? People have raised this question about the White House briefings and whether you know, if somebody is lying to you or refusing to take questions from the mainstream press, you just leave the room and, and deny them the platform. What do you think? Do you, f- do you feel like there's that common cause among competing outlets? Yeah, it, I think that I'm, I'm very hopeful that there'll be a lot more collaboration. You look at something like the Panama Papers, right, that came out last year, and it's like this big effort bringing together a bunch of investigative journalists to work on, you know, uh, on a single project. I think that collaborations are great. I think that, and also when we, when we find ourselves in fights, whether they're First Amendment fights or access type of fights in a press conferences or that, that, that sort of thing, there should be solidarity. I think, 
I think that that's important right now because this is an administration that is, is going to go directly at journalists and, and press freedom. You know, this is a, a very, uh, very sensitive commander in chief. Um, so we need, we, I think we need to like have a sense of, of being together in this. So for the moment, we're going to dispense with all notions of solidarity or teamwork, and you guys will be pitted against each other in a highly competitive drinking game. Um, we acknowledge that what we focused on President Trump uh, and his dealings with the foreign world and his foreign policy, other presidents have also said um, interesting things about um, the rest of humankind. I am going to read you quotes. Um, I'll tell you what they are about, and you will name the president who uttered them. Um, <laughs> or in some cases, perhaps the candidate who became president. So we'll start with this one. I looked the man in the eye. Oh, Bush. I'm sorry. So, about Putin. That's unfair. <laughs> right. Everyone sorry. should drink. You cheated, so you drink, and you should drink, because we should How am I cheating? Well, I know that quote. <laughs> you have to give the man a chance to answer. Uh, if you answer correctly, you don't have to drink. Everyone else does. Okay, fine. I'll read the whole quote. And then you can answer. I looked the man in the eye. I found him to be very straightforward and trustworthy. We had a good dialogue. I was able to get a sense of his soul. Bush. Very good. Well done. <laughs> about about whom? Putin. Putin. Very good. Everyone, everyone wins <laughs> that one. Okay. There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a blank administration. It was said to Jimmy Carter. Reagan. President Ford. Huh. That. One of, the, one of the world's famous debate gaffes. Oh, oh it was a gaffe. It was a gaffe. There was a little Soviet domination in Eastern Europe. There was, that's why I was confused. <clears throat> he's not only a barbarian, he's also flaky. <laughs> that's adorable, wait. That was uh, about Gaddafi. Oh, that's not adorable. Any idea who the president was? Of the US, Clinton? No. President Reagan. <laughs> hmm. There's mm. a lot of drinking happening here. Mm. All right. He's not going to go into unnamed country, all right? You can mark it down and you can put it down. You can take it anywhere you want. Who's he talking about? Who said it and who's he talking about? Or what's he talking about? Are the Soviets going into Afghanistan? Nope. Or I'll have the country name. He's not going to go into Ukraine, all right? You can mark it down, you can put it down, you can take it anywhere you want. He said that. Trump said that. Very good. I'm gonna oh. drink this one. And the last one. When the president does it, it means it's not illegal. Ah, oh, Nixon. Nixon. Talking about? Watergate. Nixon. Right, very yes. good. Let's all toast that. Here's to President Nixon. <laughs> oh. Bomb these people. <sighs> the Straight Up Podcast is produced by Megan Donis, Shrianka Ray, and Sasha Mathias, and is recorded on location at Bedford Hall in Brooklyn. For more information, visit brickartsmedia.org.